Welcome back to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. Hello, I'm your host, Alice Stoltz. In this episode, we'll explore using the bank of mum and dad for young people to enter the property market. And then we unpack the grants available to first home buyers. With rising house prices and a fear of missing out driving up demand, there is no doubt there's pressure on young buyers. For some, turning to the bank of mum and dad may seem like the fastest way to achieve the great Australian dream. But what are the risks and rewards of going guarantor for your child if they're struggling to get a 20% deposit? Today, we have CanStar Editor-at-Large, Finance Commentator and author of Ditch the Debt and Get Rich, Effie Zahos with us to help us understand the bank of mum and dad, what it actually is, how it works and what parents and their children should be aware of if they're in a situation where they have the ability to go down this path. Effie, thank you for joining us. A pl- absolute pleasure to be on your program. Now, Effie, what does the bank of mum and dad mean? <laughs> it's painful. That's what it means. As the bank of mum and dad myself, I can tell you what. Um, it's a very. Uh, it, I would say it's a not-for-profit organisation because not much comes back to me. I can say that much. <laughs> Probably with not um, a whole lot of ROI on that investment. I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. That's another story. But that's why I've had two kids because I'm hedging my bets. I'm. I'm, I'm, I'm praying <laughs> one's going to give me a return on equity. That's for sure. Um, But look, I can see what's happening here. And as, look, a a child that really had the bank of mum and dad to help them get on their very, very first property, I understand what's happening now, you know, more so in the sense that um, it definitely gave me a leg up in that regard. We're looking at a situation now that we are being drummed in by the media, um, by by not just actually the media, the, the Reserve Bank of Australia has come out and predicted that over the next three years, property prices are going to go up by 30%. So when you look at that, you think, oh my goodness, you know, let's say a property is a million dollars, just to keep things simple, a million dollars. We're saying that in three years' time, I'm going to need another $300,000 to buy that place. So the panic sets in that, you know, I've got to jump in now. And and the thing is to Mm. avoid what's known as lender's mortgage insurance, you need a 20% deposit. That's a massive $200,000 your kids have got to have if they're going to buy, say, a million-dollar property. And we're mm-hmm. just keeping numbers simple here. Of course, you know, you can find cheaper properties. Um, or if they get in at just 5%, then you're looking at, what, 50000 So parents are thinking, okay, I've got to help my kids, otherwise they're going to live with me for the rest of their lives, um, and we don't want that. Um, and, and so in the case, they're thinking, well, how do I help them? And, and the easiest way then is looking at their own nest egg, their own property, their own home, and thinking, well, I'm going to put that up as security and I'm going to kind of guarantee the loan. And speaking to a lot of mortgage brokers, this was a big trend towards the end of the year and it's continuing now so, but investors are jumping in more so now too. So there's that pressure that, you know, we've got to get in now. Mm. So if when we talk about the bank of mum and dad, is it parents going guarantor or is it also in some cases parents giving their children a cash deposit or slash a gift? Yeah. And, and that's what, this is the dilemma that parents are up. Let me tell you, back when I started in banking, because I actually did start in banking, there were loans whereby you can either go one of two ways. 
You give your security, so your property, to make up for the shortfall that they don't have it. So they want a mortgage over your house as well as the bank of mum and dad. You could also back then um, pledge to supplement their income if they couldn't afford the serviceability. That doesn't exist now. So what normally happens is that when you hear of parents jumping in as the bank of mum and dad to help their kids buy a property, what they're doing is because they don't have that full 20% deposit to avoid that lender's mortgage insurance, which is 2% of the loan amount. It's quite expensive. And it's not insurance for the kids. It's for the bank to say, hold Mm. it, this person doesn't have all the equity. If things turn Mm. belly up, then we can at least have some protection here with insurance. So the parents give some of their property, so to speak, as insurance. You limit that guarantee. If the shortfall is, say, 100,000 in equity, you can limit it, which is good. Um, And that's what you want. You want to limit it. Or you can say, do I give them a gift instead so I don't have to put the house up? I've got no risk there. I know I've given them 50000 That's it. Whatever happens, that's it. The risk there is a couple of things. Think about mm. it this way. If you say it's a gift, you can kiss that 50000 goodbye because it's a gift. It's theirs. And if they're in a, mm-hmm. a relationship and, you know, young love, you never know where it goes. They're in a relationship and you give your child that 50000 and they've got that property together, it all becomes a little bit problematic if that relationship breaks up because that was a gift, you know, it was given to them. The other person has that equity in there as well. It can turn quite nasty. Mm. If you say it's a loan, then the lender looks at it and thinks, hmm, well, the parents loaned them that money that could affect their serviceability because they've got to pay it back. It's a loan. They've got to factor that in too with the assessment. So there's a kind of pros and cons in any which way. Mm. Even if mum and dad say, you know what, darling, I love you lots. It is a loan, but I'll get it back in five years, 10 years. Or does the bank just see that as a black and white situation that that is a loan full stop? Well, they're going to ask you because the bank will say, okay, 5% of your savings have to be genuine. The whole lot can't be just bank of mum and dad. So where's the rest coming from? Mm. Oh, it's a loan. Is it gift? When do you have to pay it back? I mean, that comes into a discussion and they're pretty open and flexible. And it is a case whereby it's important, and this will all be documented down, that if it is a loan and you seriously want that back, then it's got to be documented down. When do you want it back? Are you charging interest? And these are all up to discussion, which is why you really do need a contract if you are expecting it to be a loan and you want some money back. Mm. Or other parents, I know it's just very simple. I'll, you know, put up some of my property and I'll limit the guarantee to that amount. And then you just got to remember, go back to the bank after they've reduced their mortgage to get your mortgage off it. Mm. So Effie, this is all well and good for a certain group of people and people who are lucky enough to be able to sort of afford that generosity. But I suppose I'm also interested in, uh, you've touched on this in your most recent book, how are people supposed to really heartily save for that deposit? You know, because that is the biggest thing. So if you don't have the luxury of this bank and mum and dad, which way can people turn in that instance? Because that's a lot of people don't have this situation to turn to, do they? Yeah, no, they don't. And look, and and parents may not want to go that full guarantor situation. There are other ways that parents can help as well. Maybe they buy the property together. So they're on that title deed together as tenants in Mm. common. Um, Or maybe they buy an investment property for themselves um, because they're thinking this will be my nest egg, uh, combine it with my super maybe, and then you rent it to your child. You may be able to rent it a little bit less or that may affect your negative gearing if that's what you're going to do as well. 
Um, so it's important to, to, to realise there are other options where you may want to benefit yourself too because, look, at the end of the day, you know, parents have got to realise that um, this could set them back financially themselves. And at the end of the day, you've got to look after yourself as well. Um, and we've seen just what can happen over the past 12 months with your investments. Let's say, you know, we have another devastating situation where you're about to retire and, you know, your super has fallen completely in value and you've locked up all your equity as a guarantor to, to your children. So it's important that, you know, you do take that into consideration. Go to the other way for, for kids that are actually saving, it's not easy at the moment. And there are other ways you can jump in. Obviously, we've got the first home loan deposit scheme. Um, that's the 10,000 places that the government releases uh, and the next lot will come out on the 1st of July. Um, and they're basically like your your bank of mum and dad, that one, where the government will then kind of do pretty much the same as what your parents would have done. You only need to put 5% in and they will secure the rest. But then again, you've got to earn a certain amount of income. There, there are caps on the property that you're buying. So, you know, it doesn't suit everyone, unfortunately. Mm. So what is that best way, do you think, that people can save money to build into that deposit, Effie? I know I'm asking you like yep. the question of the moment that every yeah. first home buyer wants to know, but, <laughs> but we know that is the greatest struggle for most first home buyers is getting that deposit. So exactly. what is the best way to be able to get that as quickly as possible? Yeah, and I've tackled that e e even in um, uh, my book, just what do you do, where do you invest and so on. And look, right now, putting money in an online saver account, you are going to take so long to get that deposit. I don't want to put people off. I'm just being real here. Obviously, the, the best paying account at the moment, I think, is 1.75 on CanStar's database. That's with Rabobank. It's only for four months. Then you've got to shift it around and find something else. It's going to take you forever to do that. Mm. But I get why you save in a cash account because the money is guaranteed. The bank account guaranteed up to 250K. And we need cash in a portfolio. I get it. But I think people that are saving for a deposit these days need to actually be a lot more savvier in the sense that they've got to mix and match their, their saving strategies. And this is where, and I, just for full disclosure, I'm not a financial advisor. And, you know, if you do need advice on this, go for it, get it. But it's common sense too, in a sense that you have a bit in cash, a cash account. And if you're, you know, you're saving range is say three to five years, depending on how long, then you may be able to afford to dial up the risk a little bit. And also I'm a great believer in saving in the asset class that you intend to buy. Mm. And the reason I say that is, if you're saving in cash, but you want to buy property, the property market's just going up, 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 but your saving account isn't matching it. It's not moving as fast. But if you, for example, want to dial up the risk and you want to, say, invest in what is known as, say, an exchange-traded fund that tracks a property index, then as the property market goes up, your savings are going up in line with the asset that you want to buy. Mm. So you could have a mixture of money. It could be online saver, Maybe use your super as well to saving because you can, the government allows that where you can save for a deposit in your super fund and mm -hmm. you get all the tax perks. Um, there are maximums that you can have in there. And then a combination of maybe 
exchange traded funds. Have a look at a robo advisor and just see what are these? How do they work? Will I benefit? Just to speed up the process a little bit. Mm. Yeah, I like that idea that there are definitely other options out there that people may not have explored yet that they should actually have a think about and see if it will suit their situation. Effie, just another thing I want to touch on, how do you think changes to responsible lending that we know are coming up soon will impact these types of loans and also first home buyers in general? Yeah. Look, if people are thinking they can just get a loan so easy because responsible lending has gone out the windows, well, you better have another plan. <laughs> I have spoken to quite a few mortgage brokers on this and banks. And this is the interesting thing. So we know that mortgage brokers actually have a new law that came out on January 1. I think it's um, the actual correct title is just, I've lost that now at the moment, but I think it's like putting customers first that they must adhere to. So that came out on January 1. It's very tight for mortgage brokers. Mm -hmm. If we do get these relaxation in lending standards, then Technically, it may be harder to get a loan through a mortgage broker than a bank because they're following different rules. At the end of the day, it's a shame that they're passing the buck to consumers because that's essentially what's happening here. The liability Mm. is moving to consumers. Mm. Um, And banks are saying, look, we'll do everything to make sure that, of course, we're going to lend responsibly. They're not in the business for selling up people. We want to lend responsibly. But then the buck stops with the consumer. Oh, we've made a mistake. Well, it's your fault because the uh, responsible lending laws say that you've got to be accurate with your estimates on expenses. And this is the thing, unfortunately, with consumers. We're not good. Consumers aren't good in working out how much they spend. You ask me, what did I spend yesterday? I mean, I I know what I spent yesterday. (laughs) I'm stuck in the house. I'm never anywhere. Well, you're probably a bad example. But ask me and I won't remember anything. Or we um, underestimate because no one, it's like saying, well, how much did you eat? Oh, no, I didn't eat much at all. Not much of that cake, just a slither. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'm sure if you had a camera on me, you'd realise, no, I ate a huge slice. Mm -hmm. But the same goes with, with spending. No, I didn't spend that much. It wasn't that much. Really, I spend that much? And I guess the thing is that we do underestimate it. And unfortunately, when it comes to getting a home loan, we just want that loan. Mm. So tell me what I've got to say to get that loan. There are some real risks here. And if you underestimate your expenses by about $5,000, I think CanStar did some analysis on this, you could actually get about $70,000 more in affordability. So there's real danger here. There's real danger here that we could find ourselves, because we underestimate our expenses, if, and if someone's not being diligent, that we can borrow more than what we want. But then having said that, I definitely wouldn't, and this is a personal opinion, I don't want to get to the stage where the banks were so afraid to do everything after the Royal Commission that they were scrutinising and it just didn't make sense on a lot of things as well for people, small businesses, to get a home loan where they were basically checking mm. every Uber Eats we could possibly have. Effie, just one last question for you. What are, what are the risks involved for both sides when it comes to, the, I'm jumping back now, when it comes back to the bank and mum and dad? Like obviously you've sort of highlighted what they are for parents. What about risks that children should perhaps be aware of if they are going to draw on their parents for financial support? Yeah, I, I think they've got to be, understand the situation. If it's a guarantee, then it's limited. Understand when you can release the parents. Um If the parents are involved with them, helping them to service it, then it becomes a real risk in the sense that their financial livelihood is mixed in with yours. Um, I think it's just being open, honest, and having those conversations up front. The risk of, um, I guess, borrowing too much, you might have the security 
And that's great. You've got all the security, but at the end of the day, you're still borrowing, you know, 95% of the purchase price and you've got to buy well. I was actually speaking to hotspotting today, Terry Ryder, who is a property expert in himself analyzing prices and markets and his concern and um, he called this very well and he said basically he's really concerned that people are paying too too much at the moment and if they're not buying right they'll be in a situation whereby five years down the track when we get to some kind of normality again with markets if it wasn't a kind of a blue chip property so to speak They've overbought, they've overcapitalized, and they're sitting on a property that's probably not worth what it is. Mm. Yeah, so buy well. Don't, don't, don't. Yeah, Yeah. so people have to be so crystal clear, don't they? Buy well, do your research, think about it, and don't be tempted just to think, oh, well, I've got to get it. Exactly. Tapping into FOMO, basically. Yeah, and especially a lot of these regional suburbs where they're just jumping in. He was saying there's a lot of people jumping in from, you know, Sydney, Melbourne, downsizing and putting a lot of money in a regional property where the locals are really upset too because they're pricing them out and they're inflating the market so much. And if that regional suburb doesn't sustain itself after all this, well, then you are left with a a property that you paid way, way too much for. It's a lose-lose situation in that instance. Effie, thank you so much for talking with us today. It was really fascinating and, um, yeah, it's a really interesting conundrum that I know a lot of Aussies are faced with at the moment, so thank you. Pleasure. Any way I can help parents get rid of their kids out of the house earlier, I'm all in. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, with three of my own, I'm listening to everything you've got. So thank you again for joining us, Effie. See you soon. Pleasure. Thank you. Being a first home buyer is a nerve-wracking experience and can be utterly confusing. Across the country, prospective buyers have plenty of incentives to help them take the plunge. Here's Domain's editorial director, Adrian Lowe, to break down what's on offer. Getting into the property market is never easy at the best of times, and right now, the market's hot pretty much everywhere around the country. For first home buyers, there's a raft of concessions and enticements to help make that first property purchase. Let's take a look at what's available. The most generous state concessions are in Victoria, specifically outside metropolitan Melbourne. Anyone buying or building a new home in regional Victoria valued under 750 grand is eligible for a grant of 20 grand. In Melbourne, that grant is 10 grand. On top of that, first home buyers in Victoria don't pay stamp duty for anything below 600 grand and there are concessions available for anything valued between 600 and 750,000. In New South Wales, first home buyers have a $10,000 grant for new properties under 600 grand and building contracts below 700,000. If you're buying land to build a new home, the total price must be no more than 750 grand. There's also no stamp duty on property under 650,000 and anything valued between 650 and 800,000 get discounted stamp duty. There's also no stamp duty on property under 650,000 and those between 650 and 800 grand get discounted stamp duty. In Queensland, the grant is 15,000 for properties under 750,000 and there's no stamp duty paid on anything less than 500 grand. Over in the West, first home buyers in the Perth metro region get a $10,000 grant for any purchase below 750,000. If you're further north, that threshold is $1 million. An additional grant announced last year of 25 grand for new builds has expired. Bad news for South Australia's first home buyers, you do have to pay stamp duty, though there is a grant of 15,000 
for new properties under 575000 In Tassie, there's 20 grand available until June 30 next year for building or buying a new home. There's also a 50% discount on stamp duty on properties below 400000 In the top end, there's a $10,000 grant for building a new home, as well as a bonus $12,000 if your contract is signed before the end of March. That's a bonus available to all buyers. The Territory Government does plan to wrap up its stamp duty concession scheme by the end of June. This is a scheme that allows a discount of about 18000 And in the national capital, there's no stamp duty at all. There's a concession package for new and established homes, as long as you earn less than $160,000. Now, on top of all of that, the Federal Government's Home Builder Grant of $15,000 for new builds has been extended to the end of March. Caps on the value of eligible homes in New South Wales and Victoria have been increased this year. Now, on top of all of that, the Federal Government's Home Builder Grant of $15,000 for new builds has been extended to the end of March. Caps on the value of eligible homes in New South Wales and Victoria have been increased this year. You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, hit subscribe and take a look at our previous episodes. Our executive producer is Adrian Lowe, with production by Hayley Cools and editing and mixing by Dan McHugh. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au or download the Domain app. Thanks for listening. Chat to you soon.